Welcome to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Welcome everyone. It's been an eventful week for a number of our people and um, I think our hearts goes out to everyone that's, you know, been going through some troubling things. And funnily enough, the, the message that I've got today really links into that. Um, must have been a God thing, because when I was given this text um, to work with, it's three weeks ago, and it really still speaks very much to, you know, what we're all going through right now in our journey. And the journey that I want to take you on today starts at the very beginning in the first century. In the year 64, now that's about 30 odd years after um, Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman Emperor Nero decided that they were going to start persecuting Christians. Uh, There was a couple of reasons for this. The Christians were very stubborn they didn't want to listen, they didn't want to bow down to Caesar, and you were supposed to do that. They didn't want to bring offerings in Caesar's name, you were supposed to do that. And they were this really weird bunch that had this very crazy notion that there was only one God. Now, um, the Romans, they, they believed that there was a God for every occasion, so knowing that you only had one God, it's like, there's something wrong with those people. Uh, The Christians also didn't want to go and do the temple offerings. Now, the temple offerings is things that you had to go and buy at the temple and then offer at the temple. So, you know, since the Christians didn't want to do that, there was a loss of income, which means a loss of taxes. So we really, really upset the whole Roman Empire. Uh, Then they didn't want to partake in the temple rituals. Now, the temple rituals included things like temple prostitutes. Now, church back then meant a whole lot of different things than I do today. We didn't want to do that either. So once again, a loss of income there. And then the weirdest thing, our faith, the metaphors of it was misunderstood. And in the beginning, they actually thought that we were a cannibalistic faith because we ate the flesh of our God and we drank his blood. So according to the Roman people, we were really, really bizarre, and they needed to get rid of us. They did a lot of things in trying to correct these heathen Christians back into the civilized Roman faith. And part of that was capturing them, killing them, uh, flogging them, and trying everything in their power to publicly get the people to denounce God and go back to being, you know, civilized Romans. And the reading that we're going to do today comes from that period in the Christian history. So our reading is from 1 Peter 3, verse 13 to 22. I'm going to ask you to bear with me because it is a lengthy piece of scripture, but we will work our way through it. And in this scripture, Peter is specifically speaking 
to the first century Christians, the first century church, while they are going through persecution. It was a Christian's worst nightmare, pretty much, like you know, Jeremy quite often tells us there's still a lot of Christians in the world currently that are being persecuted, and it was pretty much the same thing for them back then. It was a difficult time, it was a scary time, and you know, there was there was a lot of things coming against them, things that would make their daily lives really, really tough. And it, it kind of resonates with what we're going through right now in our church. There's a lot of things going on here that's making today tough and making tomorrow tough and making this coming week and maybe the coming month really tough. And I really want to encourage you that, you know, with what Peter had to say 2,000 years ago is still as relevant today for us now as it was then. If we can hold on to God in the face of great adversity and honor God in everything we do, and he, he encouraged them to say even that should you be captured, so should things really, really turn you know, from bad to worse, just hold on to God because in that lies our hope. I will be reading from the New International Version. So from verse 13 onwards. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even should you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear the threats and do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this in gentleness and with respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also once suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirit, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the waters. And this water symbolizes the baptism that now also saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, a sitting at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Peter is encouraging the people, the persecuted church, the people that are really, really having a very, very difficult time. He's encouraging them not to lose hope, not to lose faith when they are going through their difficult times. Verse 13 reads, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now the original Greek there basically said, 
Who will harm you if you become zealots of him who is good? So if we're going to translate it into just Kiwi English, okay, who's going to harm you if you are zealously devoted to God? And yes, yes, we will have things and people that will try and harm us here now, but does that in an eternity point of view, does it actually make that much of you know, a difference? No, because what we have here is but a drop in the ocean as far as the moment that we spend on earth versus the eternity that we are going to be spending with Christ. In verse 14, it says, but even should you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. And this echoes what Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for rightness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people reproach you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things falsely against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who went before you. So even though we sometimes face really tough times and we have huge obstacles that we have to overcome, just hold on because great is our reward at the end. Peter is telling us that if we're persecuted, if things go horribly wrong in our lives, if circumstances seem overwhelmingly challenging, to just hold on to God, keep our eyes focused on him, because everything that we do now, all the suffering, all the hurt, all the pain, all the heartache, will pale in comparison to the glory that is coming. But my focus today is going to be on verses 15 and 16. 15 read, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I think we've already seen a little bit of that this morning when things are going bad, that the people here, our family, are able to say, yes, it is tough, but this is the reason why I still have hope. This is why I'm still standing here strong and smiling and in the middle of the pain, holding on and carrying on because I know, you know, who my electrical outlet is, where I'm plugged in. I know where I'm getting my power from. In difficult times, Peter is encouraging us not to get distracted. He's saying that Christ is our reason for living. Christ is our living hope, as we heard a couple of Sundays ago. He is our faith. He is our salvation. And then he encourages them to have an answer when someone should ask and be respectful in that answer. He says, answer in such a way that the answer itself will calm down fires and not start them up. 
He encourages them to speak with gentleness and with respect. Because quite often when, you know, if you're out there as a Christian, there's a good chance someone's going to, you and, you know, your churchy things and what are you all about and you're so stuck up and whatever. It's like, what do we say? How do we answer? And Peter encourages us to, you know, answer with gentleness, answer with respect, humility, meekness. Now, the Greek word that they use there, so different, different translations uses things like meekness and humility and gentleness. Uh, the Greek word that we used was proutes. Now, a proutes person is not timid, is not, you know, someone that is weak. We sometimes talk about someone that is a strong quiet person. We're talking about someone that has strength of confidence and conviction, someone that can be gentle in relationships, but strong and firm in their convictions. And that is the type of person that he is meaning. So when he says that we should be gentle, he means, you know, speak calmly, but stand firmly. He encourages us to be confident in our faith and confident in our salvation, have a quiet conviction, something that cannot be shaken. Don't be judgmental. Don't give, I can almost say, the devil a smidgen of an entrance so that people can then turn around and say, ah, look at them. The answers that we give is the things that, you know, sort of opens the door to bring people in going to switch it up a little. In September of 2016, our daughter Dom got very, very sick. She had been given medication by the doctor, just normal meds, and then she went into anaphylactic shock and went into a coma, and um, she was really sick for a good two weeks. Uh, when we took her into hospital, they took her to the recess room, struggled for about four hours before they got her to be stable enough to send her up to ICU, and that's where she stayed for about two weeks. On day one, the specialist was an Indian doctor, um, and he was from the Sikh religion, the, with the turban and stuff. And he came and he said that our daughter was very sick, but that they're hopeful. And he just wants to make sure that we understand how sick she is. She's probably got an 80% chance of surviving this thing and a 20% chance of maybe not. Now, by the end of day two, he changed the prognosis and he said, things aren't looking so great, it's probably 50-50. Which is, you know, a bit of a shocking thing to hear as a parent. And even though we're not persecuted, you know, we still get all these, these things that attack us. And it is tough. And even then, in the things that persecute us on a personal, private level, are still the things that we have to overcome and we still have to hold on to God. And then through the wonder of the internet, um, Daniel's mum uh, started up a Facebook page and we connected with our churches here, with our churches back in South Africa. We connected with our family that's around the world and they were their churches. And within two or three days, we had about a quarter of a million people praying for Dom, literally from across the globe. And then by day three, this was the 
most surreal thing that had ever happened to me in my life, and I think Daniel will agree. By day three, they called us um, in the hospital into this little room, and it felt very much like we were part of something like Grey's Anatomy, or, you know. Um, the, there was a bunch of chairs in a circle, uh, about 10 or 12 of them, two empty so that we could go and sit, and then nurses and doctors filling the rest of them. And they told us that Dom's liver had started shutting down, her kidneys are starting to shut down, her prognosis is really bad, and that by now they've given her a 20% chance of maybe surviving this. They weren't sure if she was going to make it over the next 48 hours. If she survived, she was probably going to need kidney transplants, probably going to need a liver transplant, maybe a brain transplant, because they wasn't sure how much was going to be left. And it was really bizarre. And then they asked us, did we have any questions? And we just stood there and it's like, okay, you know, that's, that's good. Thank you, we, we understand. We, we accept your diagnosis, but we're not going to give up hope. You do you as far as the medical things are concerned, and we'll do us, you know, we'll fight on the spiritual front. And then later on, a nurse came and she had a chat with me and she said she'd never seen anyone accept news that bad, that calmly. And she said, what was it? Did we actually understand what they were saying to us? And I was able to say, yeah, no, we fully understood. It's just that our hope isn't in the doctors our hope is in God. We are Christian and, you know, we've got a quarter of a million people praying for this girl. And we're not going to be bogged down by the fear of the moment. We're going to hold on to the God who created everything and who is stronger and bigger and more magnificent than any, anything that can, you know, steal our joy. And then that day when the specialist, you know, and everyone called us in, we said, okay, we're going to get the people on Facebook to start praying for the specialist. Now, um, like I said, he was from the sacred religion, not Christian at all. And we just all started praying that God should give him a revelation because Dom was one of eight people in the world that had at that stage reacted to this medication. So there wasn't a lot of research on what to do in this case. And the next morning he came in and he said, I just had this idea in the middle of the night, just woke up, boom, with this idea, something quite radical on how to treat her. I want to give her chemotherapy. Now she didn't have cancer at all, but he wants to give her chemo because the side effects of chemo might be the thing that fixes her. And we said, go for it. That's a God thing, go for it. And, you know, we told him that we've had a quarter of a million Christians praying to God to give him an answer. And at that moment, he told us, he said, ah, um, oh, my darling, but I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in your God. And once again, you know, it was just opportunity. And we were able to tell him, that's fine. You don't have to believe in God. God believes in you. So, you know, and it's, it's such a God moment. And then they treated Dom with chemo a dose a day for seven days in a row. And she didn't get any worse, but she didn't get any better. 
we kept on praying and then um, also played a lot of gospel music for him. Always had my phone sort of tucked under her pillow. And on day 11, she was still, according to all the machines, she was still in a coma. But on day 11, she started humming. And it was to Oceans by Hillsong. You better believe that song was on repeat for the next 24 hours. <laughs> that thing did not go off. And then by day 12, her eyes opened. Well, no one was home, but the eyes opened, and that was good. Now, my darling husband decided <laughs> that he was going to fast forward this whole thing a little. Um, at one stage, she was sitting slightly up, you know, as they adjust the bed and everything, and he wanted to pull the lever to slowly let the bed down so that she could lie down and be more comfortable. And he asked the nurse, where is this? And she said, oh, it's on the other side. And he just leaned over the bed, and there's this big red button, and he pushed it. Now, that is the one where if someone goes into cardiac arrest, the bed goes, Dwah! it's flat, and they can do CPR. And our, our girl is in a coma, kind of eyes open, kind of slipping in and out, not you know talking anything at that stage. Daniel does this slams the button, doof goes, you know, the bed, and in her coma, suddenly she goes, eyes wide open, looks at him, goes, Papa! <laughs> and then boof, gone again. Now, by day 14, she had, you know, had enough of a fright that she actually came back, and she had slowly but surely started recognizing us, and they eventually moved her out of ICU and back, back into normal society. To the surprise of the specialists, she still has all her own everythings, her own kidneys. They started working again. Own liver started working again. Her own brain. We're not quite sure about that one, but you know, <laughs> it is there. And the reason I'm telling you this links back to what Peter said. He said, do you have an answer ready when someone should ask you about your faith? Now, I know that we don't get challenged about our faith as much, maybe as the you know, first century Christians did. But when that happens, would you have an answer? When I spoke to that nurse, it kind of... I could see the gears turning in her head and her going, hmm, maybe there's something there for that sick doctor. It always feels so weird to say he's a sick doctor. He was pretty well. His health was fine. Um, I also think that, you know, telling him that even if he doesn't believe in our God, how God believes in him, kind of just left a little dent in his armor, just a tiny kink. Because after that, every time that he'd come past Dom's bed, he sort of lingered just a little longer. And when, when she, you know, came back half thanks to him, half thanks to Daniel slamming the red button, <laughs> and all praise to God, um, when she moved out of ICU and out of his, you know, direct care, his eyes were just glazed over just a little bit. And I, I, I just hold on to, you know, the thought that that moment there 
was a God moment, a little seed that is planted so that hopefully, you know, as life goes on, more of this will happen in his life and that, you know, one day he will actually meet God. Now, the problem that I have is this was five years ago. It's been five years since someone asked me, what is it that makes you different? It's been five years since someone asked me, why is it that you react differently to the hardships of life? What is it that carries us through adversity in a different way? What is it that makes us proudest people, quietly confident in the strength of our God? Five years. How long has it been since someone's asked you? How long has it been since someone's asked you? How is it that you are able to weather the storms of life in a different way? I think we saw a couple of examples this morning, so good on you. But the rest of us, how can we live our lives so radically different from the world around us just as the first century Christians lived their lives so radically different from the Roman culture of the day that they actually stood out. Aren't we supposed to be standing out? Aren't we supposed to look at the culture of the day around us and go, wow, this is not the way God intended it? Isn't there things that we're supposed to do so radically different that people should go, hmm, wonder what's up with them? What makes them different? If you are managing people, for instance, in the workplace, are you the one manager that, when the stress goes high, doesn't start yelling and screaming and losing it? Or do you kind of follow the same path as everyone else? When we're faced with great adversity, like illness, things that threaten to steal our children and lives around us, or when we lose loved ones, how do we react in that moment? What is it that we do? What type of advertisement? are we in that moment we may not necessarily be called up to give an apology like the first century christians to fully defend our faith but when was the last time that you actually had to have an answer ready and then if if i have to tell myself that you know it hasn't really happened all that much recently i have to ask myself what the heck have I been doing for the past five years? How is it that I can live a Christ-honoring life, honoring him for purchasing the freedom of my soul, and yet I'm able to fly under the radar so easily that no one even notices that I'm a Christian? I don't know. That, that really bothers me. If Peter encouraged us to have this answer ready, but we live in such a way that no one ever asks the question, we, we probably need to start, you know, looking at how we're living. To a degree, I was thinking, maybe I should zhuzh up my, you know, my Christian Wi-Fi and broadcast a bit better. And then I was wondering, could it be that maybe we're too comfortable in the sense that who do we hang out with? 
I hang out with other Christians, mostly the people here, you know, and they're similar to me, so we all kind of do the same thing. Therefore, no one asks because we all know. How are we supposed to go out and tell everyone else if this is the only place where we ever come, if these are the only people we ever speak to, if these are the only people we ever influence? It's like trying to wash clean dishes. We need to go out, we need to spread, you know, this, this, this hope that we have. And the only way that we can do that is by actually mixing with people that, that aren't Christians, so that they can then look at us and say, wow, you're different. It's great being here. It's great being amongst each other and, you know, recharging. But we can't just keep on recharging. We need to go out and we need to be seen. We need to be at a point where people will ask the question. So if this resonates with you, if you can also say that, like me, it's been a while since someone's actually asked you this question, since someone's noticed that something that you're doing is quite different, that they notice the words you're using is different, that they notice you're not swearing, um, but you're still fun, that you don't lose your temper and when the pressure is on and they can say, what is it that gives you, you know, keeps you cool under pressure? That those are the types of conversations that we have to have when they say that even in the face of horrible adversity that your countenance is lifted up and that you are filled with hope, like we saw you know, this morning, if, if you can say like me that it's been a while, then I want to encourage you to join me so that we can start doing this better, that we can live such a radically blessed life, such a hope-filled life, that even in the face of financial ruin, illness, death, that we will stand strong. And we know that our eternal salvation was won when Christ died in our place so that we didn't have to. He took our sins upon himself and thereby paved the way for us straight to God. He brought us back into a good, solid relationship with God and any problems we have now is a drop in the ocean in comparison to you know, what he gave us. It's a drop in the ocean in comparison to the eternal joy that we will experience when Jesus returns. And he is coming. The time for that is coming. The time for when people can ask us these questions is running out. We can't be complacent. I really want to encourage you to join me in being more like those first century Christians. Let us be the talk of our town. Let us be proudest people. Let us be quietly confident, gentle in conversation, but firm in our convictions. Let us be radically different from the world we live in and let our convictions in our faith and in our salvation be the thing that sets us apart and that grows this church and brings more people to Jesus. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you so much that you remind us through your word again and again and again what it is to be your child, 
what it is that you want for us and what it is that you want us to be able to do. Lord, help us to, to have that inner strength and conviction. Help us to live our lives in such a radical way that we are actually seen, that we don't fly under the radar, that I don't have to look back in another five years and say, wow, it's now been 10 years since someone's asked me, why am I different? What is it that's giving me and Daniel strength? Father, give us these opportunities that we can go out and stand out for you, that we can bring your word and your salvation and your joy and your glory to the world around us. Lord, help us, give us strength when adversity comes, when things happen that really, really challenges us. Let us draw closer to you. Let us find our hope and our strength in you. Father, thank you so much that you will never, ever leave us, that you are always there. And in the moments that we sometimes lose our faith in you, that we know that you will never lose your faith in us, that when we start wandering away, we know that you are solidly standing straight by us and that you never go away. Father, there's quite a number of people in our church that is going through some really difficult times right now. And it is such a blessing to be able to see the word that you've been giving me over this past week on what to preach on, that I could actually see the result of this already preceding the sermon, that, that your love and your life is already in us and in the people around here and that we could see in them, in their moments of huge adversity, that their countenance is lifted to you and that the day already starts with blessings and praise to you, even in the midst of it. Father, give all of us the perseverance and the strength to hold on to you. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you for Jesus, for the cross, for our salvation. I ask that you go with Lynn and her family in this coming week, as well as with the Andersons and their families, Jenny, her sisters and brother, and that you will be with all of them, Father. Give them your love hugs, and just your presence and calm. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast.